And it was a pretty amazing moment over here as we're singing A Little Town of Bethlehem and I look up and the snow is just dumping and it was just so cool. Oh, and now we all get to drive home in it. Here we go. It's beautiful. So glad to see you all. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and open to the book of Romans. If you're new or visiting, we're in a series in the book of Romans. We're going to go to chapter 11 today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to give you one if you don't own one or if you just forgot your Bible. Uh, you'll definitely want to have a Bible there in front of you. And uh, we continue part two today of our three-part little tour of Romans 11. And I want you to know that this week... I stumbled upon the most remarkable story about the Holocaust that I've ever heard. And what shocked me the most when I was reading this story was that I'd never heard this story before. I'd never seen a movie made about it. I've never read about it in a history book. I've never, I've never, it, I've never heard a word about it. And as I tell you this story, my guess is you'll go, I've never heard this story either. And I thought, why is that? And then it dawned on me, it dawned on me that in order to tell the story that I'm about to tell you, you have to be willing to explain what happens when the full biblical gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms a community and turns them inside out so that they want to fight for justice and good in our world. And that doesn't tend to be the kind of story that Hollywood loves to tell <laughs> or the history books. But I'm going to tell you, this story is incredible. It's a story about a little French village in the south of France called Le Chambon. That's the only French I know, Le Chambon. And how from 1940 to 1944, the inhabitants of this village worked together to provide shelter for over 5,000 Jewish people fleeing for their lives from the Holocaust. And what makes the story remarkable is, is that there were individual people all throughout Europe working to provide shelter for Jewish people running for their lives. But what makes this story remarkable is that the entire community worked together. Adults, children, working together, pooling their resources. Some scholars say that over 3,500 children were saved and went on to live lives and attribute their, their life back to this little village. An unbelievable story. The majority of the refugees that fled to Le Chambon were, were children. And the villagers provided them with food, shelter, fake identity papers. They also made sure that those they sheltered were involved as much as possible in the life of the town. So they, they, they in integrated them into their community. They went to great expense, even... Many of them were arrested and killed for their efforts to provide shelter. When residents of Le Chambon learned of an upcoming police raid, they hid those they were protecting in the surrounding countryside. It was a remarkable story. And scholars have asked the question, why did this happen? And they've discovered it's, all of them have discovered it was because this was a community of people who actually believe that what the Bible teaches about God's plan for Jew and Gentile is true, and it's going to happen. 
It's going to happen. Holocaust researcher Pierre Sauvage, who was born in the village, has observed that many of the common people in this unusual village took the whole Bible as inspired and authoritative, which means they understood their Jewish roots, the Jewish roots of their Christian faith. So these people believed everything the Bible said. There's a story, of, um, there's a story in the village of a, of a Nazi official coming to the village and trying to organize a Hitler youth camp in the village. And the students in the school said to him, we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It's contrary to the message of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? When kids are saying that, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The pastor of the church would end every sermon with the words of Jesus. He would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now go and practice this. In fact, the pastor, his name was, his name was Andre Trochme. There's a letter that he wrote. I'm gonna put a quote from this letter. He wrote to his American friend, and an American who was reaching out saying, what is happening in your community? What is happening in your church? And here's what he wrote. He said, the old Huguenot spirit is alive. That's, the Huguenot is just a way to describe the Protestant Reformation and sola scriptura, the belief that scripture is our inspired source of wisdom. He said, that spirit is alive. The humblest peasant home in my village has a Bible, and the father reads to his family every day from the scriptures. So these people who do not read the papers, but the scriptures, they stand by, by, by the scriptures, do not stand on the moving soil of opinion, but on the rock of the word of God. Isn't that an amazing story? And I promise you Romans 11 was a part of their process. They were going to Romans 11. Romans 11 is like a passage that takes you to the top of a mountain where you can get a 50,000 foot view of God's work in history, past, present, and future, and how he is working to cause the gospel to spread through the complex interrelationship between the Jewish roots of Christianity and the Gentiles who have now been included but then Romans 11 takes you right back down the mountain into the valley and says, and here's what it means for you. What are you supposed to do? And so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Would you open with me Romans 11? We're gonna pick up today in verse 11. Our passage this morning is built on two metaphors, two word pictures, okay? And each word picture has a point. The first word picture is the imagery of a boomerang. Now, Paul does not use the word boomerang, but in a moment I'll show you what's happening. You'll see this is clearly like a, a, a picture of boomerang. You, know, you throw a boomerang and it, and it comes back to you. The second word picture is a picture of an olive tree where some branches have been cut off and other branches have been grafted in. And both of these word pictures are designed and spoken to Gentile, primarily Gentile Christians. So this is a message for River West Church, 2022. Here's what Paul 
says next. We look at verse 11 with me. So then I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, Paul is still talking about ethnic Israel here. He's been heartbroken over the, the massive rejection of their Messiah by ethnic Israel. And he's even, in the verses we finished with last Sunday, he's even noted that there's been a partial hardening on Israel. They're temporarily unable to see the reality of Christ as Messiah so that Gentiles can be included in the purposes of God. And that causes Paul now to stop in verse 11 and say, but is this stumbling, is it permanent? Have they stumbled in such a way where they're permanently cut off? They're going to fall. Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? That is an astounding verse. But it's a boomerang. Did you notice Salvation in God's plan, it boomerangs. It comes from Israel. It shoots out into the Gentile world, to all four corners of the world, every tribe, every tongue, every continent, every nation, every people group. It boomerangs out only to return to God to the full inclusion of his original covenant people. This is an astounding this is like, now we're at the top of the mountain, folks. And we're getting, a, we're getting a, 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 a peek into the way that God is working and the way he's going to work. Did you know that uh, people say that if you throw a boomerang correctly, it starts returning to you immediately when it leaves your hand because of the, the, the thermodynamics, the tension, the, the way the, the boomerang is shaped, the way air passes over it. The second it leaves your hand, it's already planning its return trip. I love this. This is God's plan to cause the gospel to shoot out from the people of Israel through a temporary and partial hardening. Amazing. Paul goes on, verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, okay? Listen up. We have in our church right now, we have people who have ethnic Jewish roots. And if, if you are here, welcome. We love you. You are welcome in our community. But let's, the vast majority of us are Gentile Christians. Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, look at this. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Just a profound, profound passage. And it's a boomerang. Paul says, ethnic Israel and their response to the gospel is going to unfold in three stages. I've got a slide that I wanna show you. This is not my points. I've just found it's helpful to show people the flow of the text. Here are the three stages that ethnic Israel is going to go through when it comes to the gospel. In stage one, their transgression, their rejection of Christ, brings wide-scale salvation 
to the Gentiles. Remember last Sunday, I told you in the book of Acts, you look at this pattern in Acts where the first Christians, all of whom were Jewish people, they were, they were devout Jews who recognized that Jesus was their Messiah. When they wanted to preach the gospel, the very first place they would go was to the local synagogue. They would walk into the synagogue, preach the gospel, expecting their kinsmen, their sisters and brothers to see that Jesus is clearly their Messiah. And to their great surprise, very few of their contemporary Jewish brothers and sisters followed Jesus. Some did, Paul calls them a remnant, but the vast majority rejected Christ and even often rejected the messengers. What happened? Those early preachers, proclaimers, were booted out and they went out into the streets and the byways and the, and the, and the alleys and they shared the gospel with Gentile people who responded in droves to the good news of Christianity. Paul says this was a part of God's plan. And so within just a few decades, 20, 30 years, Christianity had become a multi-ethnic, it had been become global, it had, it had spread to every continent, an astounding development. But Paul says that's just stage one. Stage two, the Gentiles' enjoyment of Israel's Messiah causes envy. Now, this is gonna be the bulk of what I'm gonna talk about in just a moment. This is what I'm gonna call the jealousy stage. It's a very, very odd concept, okay? But we gotta get this. The basic concept is that as the Jewish people see Gentiles enjoying all of the promises, all the Old Testament promises designed for them, it creates this sense of jealousy. And then stage three, at some point in the future, there will be a mass response of faith to the gospel within ethnic Israel. And we know this is true because Paul describes it several times. Look at verse 15 where he talks about their acceptance. He says, if their, if their rejection of Christ was a blessing and brought reconciliation, think what will happen when there's a whole scale acceptance. And in verse 12, he talks about full inclusion. Paul's saying, Gentiles, lest you think that when there's this massive revival that breaks out in ethnic Israel, that that's somehow going to be a problem. There's not some kind of scarcity complex when it comes to the kingdom of God. We will be rejoicing like never before as we see the gospel spread like that. Amen. It will be the great, great day in the global church. And I pray for it even now. And in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to pray for it too. Amen. Amen. But... Paul's implicit challenge in this is to the Gentile Christians, and it has to do with this word jealous. Did you see it there? Look again, verse 11. This word, it's such a bizarre concept. It's bizarre because in general, when we hear jealousy, we think of something negative. It's like, you should not be jealous. There's, there's sort of like the unbiblical negative, thou shalt not covet. That's when you're jealous of something that does not rightfully belong to you and you don't trust God. This is sort of more of a biblical jealousy where an emotion stirs up for something that does belong to you and can belong to you as you see someone else enjoying it themselves. Paul says, God's gonna work through this kind of jealousy. 
But I'll be honest with you, I, all week long I struggled, I prayed, Lord, how can this be? Jealousy, and what, what is our role in this? On Friday, I had lunch with one of my oldest friends in our church. He's a dear brother. He's a Jewish Christian, so he is ethnically Jewish, but he believes in Jesus. And I, we had lunch, and we, we hadn't even, we set up the lunch months ago, but we, and it just happened to happen Friday, right? So here we are, sitting there talking, and I'm like, I gotta ask you about Romans 11 and the jealousy thing. I'm like, I'm struggling. Like, honestly, am I supposed to get up in front of River West and talk about this? And he looked at me, and he said, you have to talk about it. You've got to talk about this. This is why I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. My Jewish heritage caused me to open the scriptures, read the messianic promises in the Old Testament. The Messiah would come from David and he would be a great leader. But then I go to Isaiah 53 where Isaiah says, yes, but he will be a suffering servant. He will be so marred and wounded and abused and tortured that he will no longer look like a human being. And he will bear the iniquities of his people. And I would read these promises and then I would begin to notice how Christian people in my life, they exhibited a peace and a joy and a passion and a deep intimate relationship with God that was definitely missing in my life. And I realized I'm jealous about this. He was like, if you don't preach this on Sunday, you are disqualified as a pastor. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he didn't say that. He loves me. He said, listen, go to the new covenant. Just open one promise. Okay, so you don't have to turn there, but here's Jeremiah 31. Here's just one passage. Okay, now remember, this is a promise made to ethnic Israel. And listen to what ethnic Israel was being promised they would enjoy. Jeremiah 31, you can read this later. One of the great new covenant passages says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Do you see that? The new covenant was for the people of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah's describing an intimate relationship with God, God dwelling with his people. Ezekiel describes a similar thing in 36 where he, he describes the new covenant and says, where God says, I will remove the heart of stone, that heart of stone that is, that is rejecting God, hardened, I will take that out and I will put in there a heart of flesh. I'll fill it with the Holy Spirit, new affections, new desires. Jeremiah's describing the same thing. And that's not all. Look at verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will know, there will be a deep relationship. No one will have to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will already know the Lord. For I will forgive their sins 
and I will remember their sin no more. There's this powerful, experiential moment, emotional, existential, where you realize my sins have been forgiven. Why? Because this very Messiah that God had promised, he died on a cross, took my place, rose from the dead. Remember what Jesus said when he, when he instituted the Lord's Supper? He said, of the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, I am the one who's inaugurated the new covenant. You cannot enter into the new covenant with God without starting a relationship with the Messiah who died and rose again to inaugurate that covenant. It goes through Jesus, Messiah. And my friend said, you must talk about this. You must talk about this. This will be the thing that will cause the gospel to spread, to, to boomerang out after the full inclusion of the Gentiles and cause many of God's ethnic people to start a relationship with Jesus. So beautiful. River West, can I challenge you with something? We will never make anyone jealous about something that we are not ourselves enjoying. No one will be jealous of something that you are not enjoying. Are you enjoying Jesus in your life right now? Can I ask you a question? When you talk about your relationship with Jesus, do you use the word enjoyment? Because you should. It was designed to be a relationship that would constantly flood your life with joy, and you should talk about it. This illustration is really, really rough, okay? Um, but imagine if both of my daughters, when they were younger, decided, we've had enough with the McMurray thing, we're out of here, and which could have happened very, very easily. But they're young. Imagine they're young, like, you know, six and 10 or something, and they're just like, we're out of here. And they just blow off the McMurrays. They wipe the dust off their feet, and they just take off. And so my wife and I, heartbroken, we move forward, and we decide, well, we'll, we'll, we'll adopt new children. So we adopt a couple children. <laughs> I'm telling you, the analogy is rough, Okay. This is not going to happen. It didn't happen. All right. It's an illustration. So there we are, and we're enjoying our new family with adopted children. And imagine, now wait, imagine it's Christmas morning, and my original daughters begin to realize, what have we done? And they come back on Christmas morning. This is like straight out of a horror movie or something, right? And there they are at the frosty window, like wiping away the frost. And there's Kathy and I with our adopted children around the Christmas tree opening presents. And this feeling of we should be in there. This is the way that God works to cause the gospel to spread. As his people savor all of the beauty, all of the benefits of Christ. I've found myself saying recently, our secret weapon of evangelism is joy. 
Because joy is the thing that's effervescent. It just like, it just bubbles out of you. And it should. I'm not talking about happiness, worldly happiness, circumstances. No one cares about that. I'm talking about something that has nothing to do with your circumstances except for one. You have a relationship with the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again. And it causes this, and you enjoy it. Is, joy, is Jesus the greatest joy in your life? If he's not, then I need you to ask the question this morning, why not? What has taken Jesus' place in my life as the source of my actual joy? And do I talk about it? When I'm interacting with people and they ask me, why are you so joyful? Do you say, I have a relationship with the Messiah of the Old Testament and it's changed my life? And as a community, do we enjoy Jesus? When you come every Sunday and you're walking down that path, I've said this many times before, one of the things I hope is happening is you're preparing your heart to enjoy Jesus. Like, why am I here? What am I doing here? Why am I, am I here to critique the sermon? Am I here to critique the coffee? Am I here to, what am I doing here? No, I have come to enjoy Jesus with all of my heart and also do it with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's come every Sunday and enjoy Christ together because can I tell you something? People will notice. People will notice. And it will spread. Jew and Gentile, the gospel will spread. But then Paul moves to another word picture. Okay, so now I'm gonna preach verses 15 to 24. Just kind of look at your Bible, get your bearings here. Here's what I need to do. Um, before I read this, I'm gonna to explain to you one horticulture lesson, a gardening, a gardening lesson here. All you gardeners, you're gonna love this moment. This is like your nerd out moment, okay? Uh, scholars have noted that in ancient Palestine, throughout the Mediterranean world, there was a common practice, especially with olive trees, where um, when an olive tree would stop bearing fruit, it would become fruitless, they would do a process called grafting, where they would cut off a branch that was fruitless and they would graft in a young branch from a, from a wild olive tree. And that grafting process, the, the new branch would connect to the vine and the sap from the vine would, would reinvigorate the branch and the branch would begin to bear fruit. So now you've taken a fruitless tree, you didn't have to kill it or chop it down, and you've made it fruitful. Now I watched this happen as a child. My father came home with a Christmas tree with a big, gaping, awkward hole right in the middle, and my mother was not happy, and my dad said, don't worry about it. I, this was the, one of the great, my dad was, he was brilliant, but he, here's what he did. I don't even know if he had studied grafting. He, he took one of the branches that he'd cut off from the bottom where you put the stand in, and he took a drill bit, the same width as the branch, drilled a hole into the stem of the Christmas tree, plugged the branch in, and he stood back like he was the most amazing human being on the planet. <laughs> and my mom was like, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
Now, the branch did die quicker than the other ones, but that's not a part of the story. The purpose of the story is this actually works, and even people in Rome, but especially Jewish people, considering whether Jesus was Messiah and watching Gentiles radically be transformed by Christ, would have known about this practice. And then now Paul describes it. Now listen to the argument. It's so profound, but I want you to notice something. This argument is directed towards Gentiles. So listen carefully. Verse 15. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root, now Paul goes to the, the olive tree. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But... If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, he's now talking to Gentiles. Hey folks, we Gentiles, we are the outsiders. We are the wild olive shoot. If we were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, Remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Well, then some might say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, that's true. They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And then look at this. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Amazing. This is amazing. Now, I'm going to explain it, so, but here's what I want you to notice. What is the main point of this illustration? Gentiles, Check your hearts. Check your hearts. It is astounding to me that anti-Semitism, which people have regarded as the longest form of prejudice, it's called the old prejudice, going back thousands and thousands of years, it's astounding and embarrassing to me how often anti-Semitism has happened within the Christian church. The only possible way that someone who loves Jesus could participate in anti-Semitism would be that they do not ever read their Bible. Anti-Semitism's in the news again. Have you heard about this? It's in the news this week. The artist formerly known as Kanye West, who now goes by Ye, 
okay? And he's said and done some crazy stuff. But for me, I hear that and I go, this is probably just a person who's, who's just, you know, like, please take, don't just take away the Twitter account. Take away everything that he can get his hands on, okay? But the point is, underneath that, there is this strange concept that somehow we would look down on the very people that God made his original covenant promises with. And it's amazing. It it started within 200 years of Paul writing this letter. So anti-Semitism goes all the way back to ancient Rome as, as Jewish people Left, left Palestine and they spread out over the world. Everywhere they went, because of their commitment to monotheism, they were discriminated against and sometimes brutally so. And we all know where that led. But what's astounding is that even when Paul wrote this letter, within 200 years, there are Christian documents where people are writing things that are really, really inappropriate. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the reformer, made some of the most profound contributions theologically to the Christian church. But if you ever read some of the things he wrote about Jewish people, you would be flabbergasted. There's no place for it. And Paul says, I'm going out of my way. Did you notice he says it three times in this passage? Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. How in the world, based on what you know, how, it's like the, the human heart is insidious. We can take something that we've received from God as a gift of his grace, even knowing I don't deserve this at all. Somehow in God's mercy, I have been grafted in, an outsider, I've been grafted into the Jewish root of Christianity. How could I take that gift and turn it and now look down on my Jewish brothers and sisters for whom God loves deeply and he has a plan for their future? Amazing. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna actually make a positive statement. This is what I think we're supposed to do, okay? I think you should write this down. Take this with you. Here is... Here is sort of the the positive way to say this. River West, we should live with a posture of humility and deep gospel love towards our Jewish sisters and brothers. That should be an amen moment right there. River West Church, we should live with a deep humility, a deep posture of humility and gospel love towards everyone, but in light of this passage specifically, towards our Jewish brothers and sisters. And Paul lists out all these reasons. Look at verse 18. He says, don't you know, you don't support the root. The root supports you. You've been grafted in. Christianity is at root a Jewish religion. We have Jewish scriptures. We have Jewish fathers, Jewish promises. Our Messiah is Jewish. The new covenant, which we enjoy, was given originally to the people of Israel. And here we are, we've been brought in. And now the church is multi-ethnic, it's global, but there's a day coming when God will, the boomerang will return. I'm gonna talk about that next Sunday. It's a big concept, I realize. So anti-Semitism 
off the table. Can I say one real quick thing, though, real quick? The other extreme is just as unhelpful, which I would call the other extreme sort of this strange and bizarre, unqualified support for political Israel, the nation of Israel, where there's sort of like this blind, unchallenged support politically. That's not good for our Palestinian Christians who we love, that's harmful to them. And it's actually not really good for our Jewish brothers. They don't, our Jewish brothers and sisters do not need our unqualified political support. They need the gospel. That's what they need from us. They need us to share the gospel. Paul says, you don't support the root, the root supports you. And then he says, look at verse 20. Remember, you're only standing in this by faith. And even your faith is a gift. Your faith is a gift. You're here by faith. What was, what was the cause of them being cut out? They refused to believe. Why have you been grafted in? Because God in his grace has ignited your heart with faith. He says in verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. I think this is sort of a warning to, this is a warning about cultural Christianity. I think what Paul's doing there is he's saying, he's saying, what was, what was it that caused the, people of ethnic Israel to be cut out. It was that they took God's grace for granted. They, they went through the motions. They gave God lip service, but they didn't actually love him or receive his Messiah. Paul's saying the very same thing could happen in a culture that becomes vastly Christian. Now, we live in the Northwest, so cultural Christianity, it's probably more common in the South. But I mean, there is cultural Christianity there is like, I was raised in the church, so I guess I'm a Christian. You know, that's not that, that Paul's saying, you could begin to take for granted and give God lip service, but not really like love and follow Jesus. He says, be careful. Are you taking, are you taking your Christian faith for granted? I'm a church kid, all right, through and through, 100%. So I know what it's like to be raised in the church. I was that kid. I grew up in a church where someone made homemade communion bread and it was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. I know because I devoured all of it at the end of the service every week. I was like, I can't get enough of the body of Christ. And I would sneak, I would sneak into the kitchen and people would just catch me with fistfuls of communion bread, so, you know, okay? Church kids, growing up in the church, incredible blessing. Danger, you can assume you're actually born again, you actually love Jesus, but what you're really doing is you're just going through the motions. You're just a church kid. Paul says a relationship with Jesus is not something you inherit from your parents. It's something that happens in your heart and you actually love him and worship him. And then this is the most astounding thing. Now now I'm gonna finish out and show you verses 23 and 24. Paul basically says, look at, look at verse 23. He says, look, if God included wild branches, he definitely has the power to re-include the natural ones. And actually, that's what he's planning to do. It was actually, it took more power to graft in wild olive branches. This is an astounding argument. But if you read it, Paul's basically saying it will take less divine power to re-include the natural branches. They're the ones that belong. 
So Paul says, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to do this. For if they were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Amazing argument. Amazing argument. Notice, though, Paul says, it will involve belief, belief in Jesus. I'm gonna talk about this next Sunday. So this is, a, this is about a massive revival that will break out globally of ethnic Jewish people believing that Jesus is the Messiah and starting a relationship with him. Hallelujah. I cannot wait for that day. Can I give you three practical things to do here? Number one, will you start praying about that? Pray, Lord, please May it happen. Oh, God, please. I mean, pray for everyone. Pray for all of your neighbors. But, but if you have relationships with brothers and sisters of Jewish ethnic background, pray for them. God, please. I pray they would see in my own life as I'm enjoying their Messiah that something would stir in them. Pray about that. Here's another little thing. Learn how to talk to a Jewish unbeliever about their Old Testament messianic promises. Do you know how to do that? Do you know, do you know how to say, I love your Old Testament. I love Isaiah 53. Could we read that together? It's incredible. Do you know how to like go to the places where Messiah is described and show a Jewish sister or brother, this is Jesus. What a gift. Here's a third one. When you show up to community, does the joy increase or decrease? I ask this of myself a lot. Adam, when you show up to the community group, when you show up to the men's group, when you show up on Sunday morning, does the joy increase or does the joy decrease? I wanna be the guy who, when I show up, somehow by God's grace, the joy increases. I don't always get it right, I know. I'm a buzzkill sometimes. Okay, but I try, and I hope you do too. I hope every time, your community group this week, when you're on your way, are you thinking, this is the greatest privilege of my life. This is the most incredible thing I get to do. I get to enter into community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh God, I pray I'll bring joy to that moment. Amen? Amen. It's snowing. How can we not have joy? It's snowing right now. All right, all to the glory of God. Can you pray with me? And then come back next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we need this teaching, Father. We need this teaching because it's, it's probably for many of us something we've never heard before. Are you kidding me, Lord? This is the way you're going to work? Apparently, and we have a role to play. And so, Father, how I pray right now in this moment for an astounding, Astounding humility to settle on our church. Humility. That we would remember who we are. The wild branches that were grafted in. Oh God, what a mystery. What a grace. Forgive us for looking down on anyone but especially those who you would consider be the natural branches, may our love grow.
our passion, our passion for the spread of the gospel in our church, our passion to serve those downtown struggling with houselessness, our passion to love our neighbors as ourselves, our passion to let the joy of Jesus emulate out of our lives. I feel as though today is a call to joy, a call to enjoy Jesus. And we wanna do that now as we go to the table and eat and drink and as we sing, would you flood our hearts with joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.